one of the hidden uh, misconceptions or something that I didn't appreciate was an important factor. Maybe it's obvious to a lot of folks, but to me at least, as a city boy, just doesn't have that. There's a small like dynamic of your high value add agri-tech. So you're looking for vertical farms, some of your agri-tech high level productivity. Somewhat next to it is a food processing, food trading. So I think when we look at that also, we need to think about the layers, not just in terms of agriculture, in terms of just farming, but before that you have your inputs, the actual farming, the harvest, you have the offtake in terms of movement you have to do the processing then you do some more movement then you're doing trading and eventually you're selling this and guaranteeing shipments so there's an interesting value chain which follows the processing chain of it so I think that's the goal is just to put up a landscape of that at level one in terms of agri-tech welcome to Brave learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders build the future learn from our past and stay human in between no BS on success I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseaa.com. Did you know that over 70% of B2B trades are conducted on credit terms? However, many suppliers struggle to support this, leading to lost business opportunities. Fluid offers instant B2B financing with one tap, seamlessly integrating with marketplaces and supplier platforms. This payment flexibility empowers buyers to secure their purchases on credit terms or installments. This results in increased basket sizes and an influx of new buyers for suppliers. Fluid provides a great user experience and the ability to facilitate high-velocity trade. This differentiates Fluid from traditional digital lenders and invoice financing companies. Want to learn more? Get in touch with Tracy, Fluid's co-founder at T-R-A-S-Y at G-O-F-L-U-I-D dot I-O to learn more. Hey, Drew, what's up? Hey, Jeremy. I guess it's time for monthly recording where we riff about different things we have seen across Southeast Asia. I think we have looked at a lot of agricultural stuff and discussed agricultural companies at quite a deep level over multiple occasions. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to just synthesize some of our learnings and thoughts, whether it's in agriculture in Indonesia or even Vietnam. So I think a lot of people are looking into e-fishery for X and agriculture has become one of that X. So what do you think about agriculture technology? I mean, there has been so many different plays across the value chain. We see that in upstream side where people are trying to do inputs. You see that in financing, in sort of the downstream side where people are trying to do distribution to retail, F&B. Is this even venture backable? After all, it's a fairly thin margin, fairly volatile commodity as well. Yeah, I think lots of different questions, right? We can start from the bottom up, work our way up, which is level one is how big is agriculture? culture, a section of the Southeast Asian economy, right? And the answer is it's large and it's important for both food security, but also for putting food on the tables is for people around Southeast Asia and across the world. We look at, for example, Indonesia, Vietnam, there's very large agriculture. You look at the rest of ASEAN, there's also a very strong agriculture constituency and sector. And then you, if you look at it, it's not just smallholders, but there's also cooperatives as well as conglomerates. So there are different kind of market players at different stages. And I think the other slides that we should also think about it is also in terms of 
crop. So when we talk about putting food on the table, we're looking all the way from rice, which is your staples, to something that's more on the other end of the scale, which is like cash crops. The most homogenous, nice, for example, would be palm oil. And then of course, somewhere in between, you have different types of fruits, ranging from durian plantations to, I mean, there are all kinds of fruits, right? And some of it is domestic consumption and a lot of it is also for export. So it's a mix of that as well. So when we think about agriculture, to some extent, we have to think about, again, not just geography, but also what are the market players in terms of the plane of organization that were there, as well as the crop type and the attributes of that crop, which is, I think, underappreciated because when you're doing SaaS, there's only one type of SaaS. So there's not too many variables. But I think crop is, from my perspective, after several years, one of the hidden uh, misconceptions or something that I didn't appreciate was a important factor in terms of thinking about it, which maybe is obvious to a lot of folks, but to me at least, as a city boy, <laughs> just doesn't have that. Of course, let's spell out the obvious is that Singapore doesn't really have, might have much of an agri-tech space. That being said, obviously, there's a small like dynamic of your high-value-add agri-tech. So you're looking for vertical farms, obviously, some of your agri-tech high-level productivity. Somewhat next to it is some of the food processing, food trading. Obviously, we see Olam doing a lot of that agri-foods commodities as well, and all the way to agricultural trading as well. So I think when we look at that also, we need to think about the layers, not just in terms of agriculture, in terms of like just farming, if that makes sense. But like before that, you have your inputs, you have the actual farming that's happening, you have the harvest, you have the offtake in terms of movement, you have to do the processing, then you do some more movement, then you're doing trading and eventually you're selling this and guaranteeing shipments. So I think there's an interesting value chain which follows the processing chain of it. So the goal is just to put up a landscape of that at level one in terms of agri-tech. I think very quickly, the second part of agri-tech is just talking about what are the opportunities in Southeast Asia. And I think there's something that's there's a lot of debate, honestly, both bull cases and bear cases and happy to dive more into it as well. Yeah, so I think obviously a lot of people are excited about financing players and financing has been done in many different parts and different body goals, right? Not just agriculture. But what do we think about financing for agriculture? Is that something that's venture-backable? Can you underwrite agriculture loans without your loan book exploding in your face? And I mean, it's hard to tell, right? So I think there's two parts of it. One, you said, is that financing doable? And then secondly, is it venture-backable? And the third is, how do you avoid errors in the financing side, right? So those are the three dimensions that we're talking about. And again, I want to say that I'm not an expert on this. This is the point of view of someone who's still, from my perspective, a beginner, still very much learning about a space as well. So these are the kind of like parameters I'm thinking about. Um, I think, first of all, I think that that there is obviously requirements for capital. So if you're an agricultural, you're a farmer, you need capital. So you're using a savings and there's classic development economics we call the poverty loop, right? Which is that the negative version of that is you don't have enough capital for whatever reason. You don't plant enough. You can't fertilize enough. Then you don't get a good enough harvest. The whole family suffers. Your productivity is lower. You have less capital. And the whole cycle recycles. So the negative version is taught in almost every development economics textbook. And so the conversation is as a government, as a private sector, how do you at each stage of them so that you break out of that poverty loop from an agricultural perspective. So I think capital, whatever form it eventually shows up as, but it shows up as subsidized or stabilized, ranging from fertilizer to seeds, whatever it is, to helping support them when there is some sort of seasonality, bad weather, so that a bad climate event doesn't suddenly cause them to be okay for 10 years and suddenly get hammered into poverty in the 11th year. So I think there's a lot of ways that capital can show up, even to guaranteeing the offtake. Obviously, it is a huge benefit to farmers because they need a stability, especially 
especially for smallholders from plantations, conglomerates, they obviously have their own capital pools to stabilize their own approach in general. So I think it's helpful. And I think farmers will always desire more capital. And I think in general, what we see as a result is that most governments around the world effectively have some sort of program helping with capital, right? And that ranges all the way from government grant programs to field offices that are kind of like buying technology, demonstrating technology, doing local education, all the way to even building out seed banks and different kinds of technologies to increase productivity, like high yield crops, high yield rice. So there's a lot of government support and there's also agricultural banks that are effectively doing both grants and low interest loans to even larger loans as doable. And then you see also government support for cooperators, which is trying to help these smallholders band together and get some level of synergy across that. So I think the answer is that in terms of lending, there's both sides of it, which is it is needed. I think there is value and I think it does stabilize that. And there's also some level of support. The question that everyone doesn't really know is how much more financing can you do? Because if the answer is a lot of financing can be done and it can be paid back well because that's going to be deployed well productively, then hypothetically that makes it more likely to be venture backable. I'm going to put the word venture backable converted to high returns versus low returns because I think venture capital returns are much higher, by the way, than private equity returns requirements, which is much higher than commercial return requirements, which is much higher than what the government returns require. So it's an interesting dynamic where this capital has a large level of marginal social benefit. So every dollar put out is not just commercial benefit, but it's actually a lot of positive societal benefit. So I think there's this interesting dynamic, which makes it a bit of a head scratcher for me personally. I'm still figuring it out. And so I think a pure financing play struggles because even if you deploy, let's say, double the capital, it may not be deployed productively, right? Uh, and what that means is that it may not be translated. It may be translated to ineffective, productive techniques. So it doesn't generate the high level return that's needed to justify a VC-backed startup to be doing this instead of a government program that has a lower return target. So that's a dynamic. And that's, by the way, this logic also goes in reverse as well. But I think this generates this trend that we're seeing of startups that are focused on a certain cash crop or, or crop, whatever it is, and saying we need to handle not just financing, but also the deployment of that capital into that set in order to generate productivity. So we're looking at solar cells, irrigation pumps, fertilizer inputs. So I think this is dynamic, which is, I think, needed. So you can't just provide capital because it's not going to deploy. Well, I think it will be deployed productively, but may not be at a rate that's high enough for that return profile. So you're trying to do both. But then, of course, now you're starting to get expensive because the point of lending initially was that you wanted to be a very digital, very asset-like business. You could do that remotely. You can do remote scoring using satellites or field visits once in a while. And then now you're doing training and then to make sure the productivity is happening, you're doing enforcement. And that's where it starts to get heavy in the sense that now you have people and then obviously this is geography and so and so forth. And then suddenly you're entering this realm where you're building up. And then you're like, if you're doing productivity, then what are the other things that are very painful for farmers, right? Is they have a lot of middlemen that may be relatively efficient right now from their perspective, but you believe that you can orchestrate a better processing chain that gives better margins to the farmer, but gives yourself some of that margin. And then so you end up following that thesis and you become a one-stop shop for that crop, right? And I think that's what we're seeing right now is like almost agri-tech is like, they're not just all agri for the country, obviously, because it's a geographic requirement of it, but it's also agri at the whole crop cycle and they follow that crop from all the way from the start to the end. And one thing to caveat is it's not necessarily at the country level, obviously, because crops are really not done at the state level or city level, right? It's really at the farm level, the, the geo or region. So I think you can say this is an Indonesia chicken startup, but it's not because which island, which region is not Indonesia because it's not pan in Indonesia, right? So I think there's a lot of language that makes sense on the digital or lending side, which allows you to have that dynamic to, I think, what we see are the quirks, I think, of the agri side. So I think we talked a bit about software, digitization. What about mechanization of agriculture in Southeast Asia? Which is a better approach? Are farms ready for software or should they 
get more of the drones, the sort of automated robots to like replace farmers. What would compass in Southeast Asia? Because obviously in the United States, we see sort of both hardware and software. Yeah. I think the awkward reality is that no matter how much software you do online, the seeds got to grow the soil. You know? so, no matter how much code I write, is like that little rice at a party. It's <laughs> somebody to take care of it in the soil. So this internet doesn't convert into some AI robot that parachutes out of the sky and does the work and then goes back to HQ. I mean, maybe one day, maybe 50 years down the future, we could see some of that mechanization in that format. But I'm just saying right now, the answer is, the awkward reality is that, that there's this physical interface that has to happen. The question is, is it the owner of the asset right now, the farmer? Or is it some sort of employee that is, for example, of a conglomerate? Or is it employee of yours? Or is it some asset of yours? So maybe it's drones, right? But I'm just saying to some extent, there's a physical interface that you just can't really get around for agri. And I'm just talking about the planting and the harvesting side. And planting is a totally different if you think about it. Dexterity requirement in terms of the motions that you do. Harvest is totally different, subject to weather. There's so much stuff, variables, that you just cannot assume is just going to be done digitally. And it's kind of funny to say this, but I think... It's underappreciated, especially because there's so many VCs who are city boys like me. So I think you just got to get out to a farm and you got to see it for yourself. You got to see the slaughterhouse and you got to see stuff being moved around and you'll be like, oh, this is what's happening. What's the margins you can have out of that business? Just ferrying supplies to a place, supplying the harvest out to the mill, then supplying that stuff and moving that stuff from the mill to your end market. That's a whole trucking business effectively in many parts of the world. So I think there's one part of it. And because of that fundamental layer is a trucking business, a logistics business, how much margins can you get out of it? The truth is not much, right? I think you have to look at that value chain and you'd be like, okay, the maximum efficiency we can get out is, let's be real, right? 1% more, 2% more. It's just a trucking business, right? So I think versus financing, like you said, then what is that percentage on financing? I think people have a head scratcher because financing is a function of productivity improvement, actually. Because it's easy to lend money as we've talked about this in past podcasts with Shiyan and so forth. Lending is not about giving money. It's more like when you gave the money, did the farmer make the right choices or did you help them orchestrate that so that there's a high yield in terms of productivity and harvest and so forth. And then that generates the returns for things. So getting paid back the principal and the interest, that's what generates the margin or your net interest margin for this, right? So I think people kind of like forget this stuff for some reason because everyone's very excited to lend but not no one's very excited to collect and then the truth is non-performing loans there's a lot of seasonality <laughs> seasonality is hilarious because normally in business world oh, seasonality means Christmas everybody buys gifts Black Friday or some random stuff but there is literal seasonality seasons for agri-tech right and it could be a bad season and so you could have five years of good harvest and everybody's not performing well and then you can have flooding or you could have a hurricane or a tsunami even right so there's all kinds of weather events and then everybody would be all that risk is correlated because it's based on the weather right and so all of them will be non-performing at the same time so there's a huge amount of risk that's there as well anyway i just think that this is all these dynamics that we're not fully sizing the full risk and then it kind of goes back to your fundamental question is therefore as a result is like what is that digital layer that's doable and i think there's this dynamic where we take a giant step back here and just say look how have other countries increased their agricultural productivity time i think in the u.s is quite simple i mean there's been massive consolidation of all the smallholders so most americans are not farmers right so and if they are farming they're farming for different sets of reasons, etc. But most food in America is being built in terms of infrastructure by conglomerates, you can call them. But they're also serviced by providers like Monsanto, right, for example. So these are acres and acres. They've all been bought, sold, and basically agglomerated into flat and they have the infrastructure all done. So it's all industrialized in terms of the 
fields, in terms of the irrigation, in terms of the wells, in terms of the drones, everything's all simplified to that level. And if you think about it, what that meant was that 50 years ago, all these individual farms, 100 years ago, all used to be held by smallholders and all of them moved to the city and all of them sold the little farm. And so that's how it was done. And then I think you can make an argument on the other side of the table is that countries around the world where farmers don't have technically ownership to the land. So they don't have land rights, have the rights to use the land, but they don't have the rights to sell the land. And in those countries, you can't sell because you can't sell. And then the classic thing is you have two children, you split your farm in two. And the next generation, you split your farm in two again for your two kids. So everybody has a very small farm that can just feed their family at that size. But there is no roll up of all of the land to make it easy for this straightforward mechanical as well. So then obviously the promise then you have is that hopefully there's some technologies that can work in, I wouldn't call it fragmented, but the truth is I think the normal state of the world of lots of smallholders. So in China, there's like a lot of agricultural drone activity. So instead of trying to deliver some of those services through the normal mechanical route of irrigation lines and so forth, can we do that with drones who can get redeployed to spray some fields and then move on to the other field, but it doesn't have to stop in between, right? And in that sense. So there's not that mechanical at the underground level, which requires that infrastructure build out, but more on that air level but definitely not digital. So these are the dynamics that we have to be aware of. Agriculture is a thin margin in trucking and logistics. There's also a thin margin. So the question is, what's the productivity improvement they can have that's there? So obviously you're trying to get more efficiency out. That's the primary way to generate margin because you're trying to get more utilization of your asset. So it's still 70% utilization, trying to get it out sent because you have better maintenance, better routing, spending less time. But I think there's obviously a maximum limit to how much you can generate because again, it's a cost center at some level. So I think you're focused on economies of scale, the focus on routing. And these are a lot of pieces that we see, obviously, for logistics companies like FedEx. Obviously, for UPS, that's your consumer package side. They were benefiting a lot from commerce. So it does drive a lot of packages, both on the shipment, but also on the return side. There's a huge volume growth that enabled that economic growth as well. Versus if you think about it, if you're thinking about agriculture, let's say you're generating increased productivity of 2% to 5% to 10%. There's not a dramatic increase in both in that sense. So I think there's a conversation, which is, are you going to continue working with third-party providers or are you going to move to a first-party provider because you can really do it well? But then again, the seasonality. So very few goods, like maybe chicken to be year-round because you have a lot of control around the environment. But if you're talking about rice seasons, Again, your assets is going to be unutilized from many parts of the year because the rice is just growing and they haven't harvested yet. So I think there's this dynamic about thoughtfulness. And I think that's where maybe a good segue is I hope that as a founder, you really understand these cash crops, slash farms, slash region. I think there isn't a lot of margin of error for you to be a city boy to learn this from scratch, deploy, and then get it wrong <laughs> because it's capital heavy, it's asset heavy. You have to be on the ground. I think it's hard to recover from a mistake in agri-tech if you don't really understand what's going on. Versus I think I really respect a lot of uh, people who already have experienced their families because they grew up on those farms. They just have more understanding of what's actually going on. There's honestly a certain level of domain expertise that it's hard to learn with your first startup because that feels like a very fragile dynamic to be in. So we spoke a lot about rice and vegetables so far. What do you think about things that actually move like poultry, whether it's chickens, cows, pork, oven fish. Yeah, that's a super fair point, which is obviously there are different types of agriculture slash that bucket, right? So you have beef, pork, chicken, so on and so forth that's across the region as well. And obviously their requirements are different in terms of what are the inputs required, what are the dynamics, what are the risks involved. And I think obviously the market players, one thing that I've noticed a little bit is that I think there's an interesting dynamic where you have market players already controlling the inputs for this type of dynamic. So for example, for chickens, you have a DOC, which is day-old chicks, which is an important requirement, which is what a young chickens that are being born so they can put them 
facilities all the way to different types of feed that you require. So I think there's an interesting dynamic where I think there's a little bit more processing on the inputs, I would say, in terms of because the animals require different things. I think adjacent to this, you also see some different approaches as well. There's been folks, for, for example, who are working on like antibiotics and hormones to like more ethical versions of antibiotics. So there's a startup in Thailand that's building like phage bacteria. So their thesis is that you can use bacteriophages to attack a lot of these diseases without having to use antibiotics. So interesting approach. So I think there's a different set of considerations because it's just a different crop from that perspective. I would say one interesting aspect that is maybe underappreciated is that yeah, supposed price is a higher price. So obviously you take more inputs because the fundamental energy transfer problem. Animals always require more energy in terms of kilojoules to farm and raise and grow compared to plants. But I'm just saying that there's also an interesting dynamic where people are making an argument that as countries get richer, for example, in Southeast Asia, then their demand for or protein goes up. So chicken tends to go up or fish, I think would be a big one as well. So there's different dynamics between kind of the input price and then the sum total of that versus the processing of that versus the eventual uh, retail price. For example, I remember I went to Oregon and the Oregon Truffle Festival. One of the products they're busy looking to farm and try to farm more of is truffles because they have their wine plantations and they took on those truffles from Europe and then they use that to kind of culture, basically seed truffles across their vineyards. What that means is that they, they had truffles a very expensive retail price. And then they also had a tourism festival. So you're never going to see a tourism festival for rice. But for truffles, there's a whole one-month celebration of the truffle season where people fly in. My wife and I, we had romantic getaways there and we just enjoy two weeks in wine country with truffles. So I'm just giving you an example of how a crop harvest that has a different high retail price can generate a different dynamic. Same thing for wine, for example. So I think we just have to be thoughtful about that. Cool. And adjacent to that is sort of disease testing because such a large part of agriculture, poultry, fish, the yield is destroyed each time by a sudden disease. You have fish rule, I mean, especially for those in aquaculture, it's so easy for diseases to be transmitted in the open sea or ocean. Is that an interesting category and more people should pay attention to instead of trying to put IOTs in farms and all that? I think the question is how do you capture value in that? So I think the answer is there's obviously a lot of value. It's like a spiky risk if it happens every 10 years but it causes a destruction of effectively 100% of value. Then if you amortize that cost or risk, it's basically creating 10% more margin, you can call it, right? Or upside every year for 10 years, right? You got to be there for 10 years. It's like selling insurance. Nobody wants to buy insurance for that moment. I mean, like once you need it, then you're like, oh, I wish I bought insurance, but it's too late. So I don't think a company just focused on that tail risk can survive the time for that tail risk to come in and it's too late anyway, because you need to do, like you said, the water testing or the preventative measures or the monitoring of the soil slash water slash health to be able to catch that early enough to avoid that happening. So I think basically this is a, actually a very important and underappreciated dynamic that's very socially beneficial. And I just think that it just has to become one of the features of one-stop shop that's there, the supporting the other blades of monetization that's there. To wrap things up, uh, I think one thing, of course, is interesting is that alternative proteins are going after the space as well in terms of all the protein. And what's interesting about that dynamic is that they're saying, hey, we can use vegetables and we can use cultured dynamics to basically go after these high-value protein products. The dream that they have is that right now it's more expensive in general. But for me, I do believe that it's a bit similar to the solar cell industry, which is that the truth is there's a fundamental law to probably the conventional farming dynamic to get the cost of beef. But if you're culturing beef cells or so, so forth, you can really get the cost of production to an order of magnitude low over the course of not the next 10 years, but the cost of the next 50 
And then once that happens, once it starts getting cheaper and it's roughly equivalent in terms of taste and similar to solar cell, then you'll become a takeover in that sense. But then maybe there's a story for another day. But I think the question then is if you believe that similar to solar cell industry, then does it reward players who are less about R&D? but more about economies of scale and the lowest cost of production, which is similar to how China took over and replaced Germany as the number one of solar cells. Um, so I think there's an interesting dynamic for alternative proteins. But I do think that alternative proteins does has a way to eventually get there to be cheaper than the cost of farm protein. And I think there's interesting disruption, you can call it, but interesting future risk point of view. On that note, thank you so much, Adriel. It was fun chatting with you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.